we just celebrated our second annual hoedown. And there was barbecue, barbecue galore. Was there not? Oh, I'm sorry, I forgot. Yes. This is, see, Matt and I switched roles. This is confusing for me. I'm going to ask the children to go ahead and be dismissed for their class so you don't have to listen to me babble for the next hour. I was told on good authority by Bob Monclova that I have an extra hour to preach. Oh, thanks. I got a, I got a, I got a, a man. Okay. So we just celebrated our second annual hoedown with some amazing barbecue all over the place, like amazing. Okay. But I have a bone to pick with y'all. How do you compare the delicious brisket of the barbas? to the turkey that I smoked. There's no comparison. Right? So here's what I'm going to propose. Aaron and I are friends, by the way, so I asked him in advance if I could use him as my analogy at the beginning. So here's what's going to happen. We're going to start a war in our church over barbecue. You can either side with Aaron or you can side with me. And what we're going to do is we're going to focus so much on barbecue that we forget the purpose of why we are called as a church. Does this sound like a good plan? Yet, seemingly, the number of churches in America who divide over such nutty and, dare I say, ludicrous reasons is astronomical. In reading and research, I found there is a church in the South that shall remain nameless that wound up dividing over whether or not the pulpit was wooden. There's another church in the Northeast, just so you know it's not a Southern thing, that divided over whether or not the carpet was a certain color or other. And yet another church in Colorado wound up splitting and dividing because they couldn't decide if they wanted to be a deacon-led church or an elder-led church. There were quarrels, there were wars that we see. And just so we are clear, I'm going to back us up to chapter 3, verse 13, and then following through 4. Because it helps to set the context. But I've entitled this sermon this morning, Wisdom Begins with Submission to God. Because this is exactly what James is talking about. James is delving into this issue of quarrels and strife within the church. But not just any church. It's what's called the diaspora, the dispersed Jewish community of church that were driven away from their home and now are living on the outskirts of all of known world. They are everywhere. He begins his letter to the 12 dispersed tribes. His audience is Jewish, and so when he begins with verse 13, whom among you is wise and understanding, his audience knows his audience knows that what he's referring to is the fear of the Lord is the beginning of godly wisdom. 
he's understanding that the wisdom he speaks about comes from God. And that we can only get this wisdom from the Lord. But then he delves into this other aspect, this thing that we spend most of verse 14 and 15 with, about wisdom of the earth. And his conclusion of this is that it is demonic. And so we have, in a sense, two types of wisdom. We have heavenly wisdom and earthly or demonic wisdom. Let's look at James three thirteen through 15. Who among you is wise in understanding? Let him show by his good behavior, his deeds in gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. What we can see, if we pause for just a second, that what he's talking about is a rhetorical device where he begins with the abstract. If you look back to 1, chapter 1, yes, that far back, verse 22, he says, "Be, But approve yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. He's talking about doing what we claim our faith holds to. But then he doubles down in chapter 22, verse 26. He says, Just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. He is uh, once again drawing this connection between this understanding of our faith that we have and the works and how we live it out. But then he takes it one step further. In chapter 3, verse 8 and 9, he says this, But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in His likeness. But then he brings up this idea of wisdom. Talk about out of left field. But is it? What he's saying, what he's arguing is that the outworking of our lives should demonstrate the faith that we have within us. But then he takes it one step further that if you do not have that outworking of your life of faith, then your faith is a dead faith. But one step further, here's an example. The tongue is a restless evil. And anyone who can tame the tongue has made perfection. In other words, we are all guilty. Where does the root of the tongue come from? It's the wisdom with which we lean upon. Is the wisdom with which we lean upon, is it from heaven or is it from the earth? Is it from God or is it from culture around us? There are two types of wisdom. But each of those types produces a different fruit. If you look at verse 16, he says this, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, 
gentle, responsible, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. There is a fruit associated with the faith of our lives and we must do well to recognize that. That the fruit that comes from the world is selfish ambition, but the fruit that comes from God is peacemaker. Now I want to pause for just a second. He didn't say peacekeeper. See, there's a difference between a peacekeeper and a peacemaker. My bad. I apologize. A peacekeeper will do whatever it is and compromise whatever they must to keep what tenuous balance of peace they currently possess. But a peacemaker will stand on definitive absolute truth and tell you the hard news and the good news to work towards a common peace. Let me say that again. As a peacemaker, you must be willing to tell the difficult news to work towards a common good peace. As Christians, you are called to holiness. As a peacekeeper, you do not confront your friends when they are living a life that is not godly. But as a peacemaker, I urge you, call me out. When you see Bruce doing some things that do not honor and glorify Christ, call me out. And I will do the same for you because I love you and I care about you and I want to see the best for your life here and eternity. And that only comes through perfect submission to the will of God. And getting that wisdom from God, we see the fruit of that. We see purity. We see peace. We see gentleness. We see people who are reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering unwavering without hypocrisy. The seed of righteousness sows peacemaking. But he doesn't stop there. No, he takes it one step further, doesn't he? He doesn't even talk about just where the source of that quarreling tongue comes from he asks you specifically and pointedly that the source of that selfish tongue is the selfish ambition and look i want to point something out in this this passage is so beautiful he compares friendship with the world to being an enemy of god this is a bold and strong statement and we must each take a moment to ponder in what areas of my life have i allowed friendship with the world to override my commitment to christ because i would stand here today and tell you truthfully everyone has myself included but it's what we do when that light has been revealed to us and how we respond that determines whether or not we are getting our wisdom from the world or our wisdom from God. A wisdom from the world, as we will see, leads to strife. But a wisdom from God leads to grace. 
Read with me in verse 4 and 5 of chapter 4. You adulteresses. Yeah, that's a good place to start. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit in which he is made to dwell in us. There is so much to unpack right there. But I want to just leave you with this one piece from this section. Either you are a friend of God or you are a friend of the world. There is no gray area. If there is no gray area, then how do we identify where we stand? Recognizing, first and foremost, that the Spirit within us is what He jealously longs for. And if our heart's desire is to honor Christ, to exalt Him as King, then we must, we absolutely must, be willing to follow the next bit here. Here it is. Because submission to God results in grace. Identifying with the world leads to division, leads to turmoil. And I just want to point one thing out. If you go back, in 1 through 5, he's building this case of what it looks like for the world. To have a worldly wisdom... You quarrel and you have conflicts because you wish to spend on your own selfish desires. And because your selfish desires are not satiated, they're not fulfilled, they're empty, they're aching for more, you quarrel more. Then he drives home, you adulteresses. I want to say one thing. Exactly how many times, statistically speaking, can a man be unfaithful to his wife and still be considered a faithful husband? Zero. Thank you. Man, y'all were a bit slow on that one. Let's try this again. Exactly how many times does a man have to be faithful to, or can a man be unfaithful to his wife and still be considered a faithful husband? Zero. Zero. Okay. That's great. So why is James talking about this wisdom and the selfish ambition and connecting it to adultery? They seem disconnected, don't they? Man, you are an astute crowd this morning. I'm glad you noticed that because I missed it the first couple times I read through that. I kind of just read over it without even thinking. But here's what it means. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. If you are in Christ, you are not yours. You are Christ's bride. You see where I'm going with this? And so when we are unfaithful, 
even in the smallest little thing of our tongue, we are equal to adulteresses. But there's hope. Man, that's a hard word, but there's hope. We oftentimes will desire something for ourselves at the cost of those around us. And in doing so, we inflict great, great wounds. James refers to it specifically as murder. Man, murder, adultery, strong language that he's using here. But then we get to the hope. Chapter 4, verse 6. Verses 6 through 9, sorry, 6 through 10, this is very important, contain 10 commands. And as a text-driven expository preacher, I am taught that if you are in a letter, find the commands. Find what the author is telling his audience to do, because in those commands are his main points and ideas. Except when it's not. And this is one of those amazing situations. So here we go, beginning in verse 6. He gives greater grace, therefore it is says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning. Humble yourselves. Those imperatives are very direct and to the point. And I'm going to challenge my Sunday school class that we're going through how to study the Bible. This is where I think the gospel connection comes. And I want you guys to challenge me if you disagree. Because the word submit is an imperative, but it's an imperative of a particular type. It's passive. In addition to, let your laughter be turned to mourning and humble yourselves are also passive. But the rest of them are active. And as good Greek students, I know you're asking yourself, well, that's pretty cool. What does that mean, Bruce? Well, what that means is this. An active imperative is something you do. You're going to do these things. But a passive imperative is something that is done to you and oftentimes in cooperation with you. Let me say that again. When James writes and says, Submit therefore, he's not telling you to white knuckle it and you're on your own and good luck to you. What he's saying, what he's arguing is this. By the power of the living and holy God. By the power of of the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that bestows the heavenly blessings of wisdom 
You see that in chapter 1. Who gives it freely without reproach by His power. Submit to God. It's not a command that you must follow in and of yourself. It is something that you must depend on God to receive. It's one of those which came first, the chicken or the egg. God came first. So when he's doing this, what he's doing is he's bookending all of these things that you have to do. Cleanse your hands. Purify your hearts. Be miserable and mourn and weep. He is bookending those statements with commands that must be accomplished through the power of the Holy Spirit. Submit, therefore, to God. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord. It is only by the power of of God that those two things can be accomplished. We cannot be submissive in and of ourselves. And we cannot be humble in and of ourselves. The heart of man is deceitful and wicked above all else. My heart's desire is Bruce and Bruce alone. But by the power and the working of the Holy Spirit within me, I can submit to God's will. I can humble myself to His will. And through that, hear this revival and almost repentive language. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. It is a call to repentance if I have ever seen one in the text. James is calling his brothers and sisters in Christ, stop being double-minded. Stop backbiting. Stop talking trash about each other. Stop telling me that Aaron's brisket's better than my turkey. Stop it. But seek to live in submission to a holy God. The reason why is because this submission to God, it gives us grace. And we see that woven through this text. But not only that, he then goes to the because of this whole situation. Beginning in verse 11 of chapter 4, he says, Do not speak against one another, brethren. Do not speak against a brother or... Uh, Sorry, he who speaks against the brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you who judge your neighbor? Look, church, this is a hard word to preach. But when we sit there and we're like, man, Aaron's barbecue is garbage. We are passing judgment as the authority of all barbecue. But when we pass judgment on those around us in equal fashion and much more severely. Did you see Bob? Did you hear what he said? 
Cote, not not Monclova, just we know. <laughs> did you see what Clay did, what he said? Did you hear that question that Maylie asked in church? Your dad will give you a dollar. Okay, I'll give you a dollar. <laughs> it gets worse than that. Our society around us has lost their daggum mind. They have lost every sense of sensibility I could ever hope to have imagined from a lost world. Now, I'm not surprised that a bunch of sinners are acting like a bunch of sinners, but it's still a bridge too far. But if I stand here, and my first inclination, when I think about the news and what they're trying to push on our children and all the political garbage that's out there, and I move with frustration, and I move with anger, and I just want to go out there and do something about it. But I'm not taking the position of Nehemiah in Nehemiah 1 and weeping and repenting to the Lord on behalf of their sin. The problem ultimately is my We can be upset. We can be angry at the craziness of our culture. But if our initial response is one of hostility and not of compassion, if it's one of judgment and condemnation and not of pointing to Christ, we have failed. If we are not standing on the truthfulness of what James says, do not be the judge. There is only one. Now just to be clear, I'm not saying we can't be discerning because Jesus calls us in Matthew to be judgmental of a discerning type. This judgment is of condemnation type. This is the one who has the power to save or destroy. Mark tells us, do not fear who can kill the body, but fear who can kill the body and the soul in hell. James is driving home this point. Let us submit to God and stop slandering each other. Let us look to Him. Let us look to our own hearts. Let us look to a one-person revival, the revival of me. I believe very firmly that God is doing something amazing in our culture. But we can't see it because of the screaming of the news. But I believe what God is doing is a pruning of His own. And what He's calling us to do is to look to ourselves, to look to Him. To depend wholly and entirely upon Him through submission and humility by the power of the Holy Spirit. And what that looks like. And what that means. Brothers and sisters, if you're here today and you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, what that means is keep that cross focus in your mind. Acknowledge that, yeah, there's a lot of nasty sin out there. 
But oh, by the grace of God. Oh, by His mercy, I would be no different. That It was a changing, transformative work by the power of the Holy Spirit that took hold of my life. And in doing so, maintaining that submission to God, don't live a life where you are judging left and right. Let God be the judge. Be a peacemaker. Be a peacemaker. Look to those around you who are far from Christ and just speak the truth in love. Look to those around you who are struggling in their faith and come alongside them in discipleship. Christ has called believers to holiness. So here's what I'm saying. If you see a friend who professes faith in Christ and they are struggling with their language, instead of coming alongside and going, man, you shouldn't do that, stop it. Love them. Disciple them. Walk with them side by side through the problem. But if you see a person who is a professing believer and they have rejected their relationship in marriage, don't just stand there and pass judgment. How can you do that? God values marriage. God instituted marriage. You're breaking a sacred covenant. These things are true. But how is it helpful in that moment? But how about instead offer a seed of hope? Things may look bleak in this moment, but Christ still reigns on His throne. And He is a God of miracles. He is a God of restored relationships. And He has called each of us to be holy. And let us build enough relationship with each other that we can work out that holiness together. What I'm saying is, Look to Christ. We all have things that we are struggling with. We all have things that we're dealing with. But are we looking to Christ in those struggles? Not asking for solutions at this moment. I'm asking for the solution. I don't want 12 steps to fix my marriage. I want to know that Jesus Christ is greater than the struggle. I don't want to know that there are 10 steps to being alcohol free what I want to know is that Christ is greater what I don't want to know is that maybe I shouldn't gossip as much about Mary Sue but maybe what I should do is look to Christ and allow the Holy Spirit to convict my heart that maybe I shouldn't speak that way there's a great preacher by the name of Alexander McLaren. Now, I love quoting Spurgeon, but this time I'm quoting somebody else. Alexander McLaren lived at the same time as Charles Spurgeon. Most people don't know who he is. He was a Scottish preacher. Spurgeon was known as the, the Prince of Preachers. McLaren was known as the Prince of Expositors. And here's what he said. We are crying out for a revival, dear friends. But the revival must begin with each and every one of us. 
Power for service is second, but power for holiness and character must be first. And only men who have let the Spirit of God work in them and do as He wills has a right to expect that He will be lifted or be filled with the Holy Ghost and with His power. Do not get me wrong. Do not get on the wrong track. Your revival, dear Christians, must begin in your study and on your knees. You must be in prayer and you must be seeking His Word. But there's another side of this story. If you're hearing this message this morning and you don't have a personal faith in Jesus, let me encourage you. The only hope we have is Christ. The only hope we have is not how committed we are to social justice. It's not how committed we are to whatever political faux pas is out there and we rail against it. It's not about any of that stuff that is so temporal that it blinds us from the truth. Friend, if you are apart from Christ, then you are subject to the wisdom of the world. As James calls it, the wisdom of demons. To free your mind from those restraints and those shackles, you must do one simple thing. Look to Christ. Heavenly wisdom comes from Christ and Christ alone. And James tells us at the beginning of this book, this letter, that God will not chastise you. He will not scold you for asking for wisdom. All you must do is ask and He will freely give. The hope and the reality and the truth of it is, apart from Christ, we stand condemned already. That the only hope that we have is in Jesus. Both believer and non-believer, Christ alone is our hope. So if you are here today, just know you stand condemned because of the sin of your life. But Christ made that way back. That way to be restored in right relationship. And it comes through cleansing your hands and purifying your hearts and being miserable, mourning, and weeping over your own sin. Because there will come a time when Jesus will return and each of us must give an account of how we dealt with this knowledge. I pray today, I implore you, let today be the day of your salvation. Look to Christ and be saved. Because true wisdom begins with submission to God. Let us pray. Father God, I come before you and I thank you for an opportunity to stand here and proclaim your word. Lord, I pray that as we go from this place, be lifted up in our lives. Let us walk a walk of repentance in submission and humility before you. 
Let us be the vessel that draws people to you. Let them know by our faith and our deeds that you are Lord. And for anyone here who does not know you in relationship, Lord, I pray that you would just continue to move on their hearts. Lord, as we continue in a time of closing with worship, I want to make myself available for prayer. Pastor Matt's here for prayer. The elders are here for prayer. Let this be your hour of seeking. It is in Jesus' beautiful name that we pray. Amen.